This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. Take your Bibles and let's go to 1 Peter, please. I'm thankful for the cohesiveness of God's Word, but also for how He leads us in His Word to understand the times that we live in and how to stay true to our Lord. The persecution in the book of Acts that we've been looking at, and most recently, the death of a deacon was also a good preacher, stood for the Lord and was stoned to death because he exposed the sins in Israel. They treated him like they treated the prophets of old. And Stephen dies for his testimony, but as a result of his testimony, we know that God got hold of the heart of Saul of Tarsus. And very soon he too will be converted and become really uh, the greatest missionary in our New Testament age. Praise God uh, for what he did in Paul's life. But anyone who will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Paul would learn that. Peter already understood that. And that brings us to our text today. But in preparation, many recognize the name of Jonathan Edwards. They recall how God used this colonial pastor to birth America's first great awakening. What many may not know is that Edwards faced great opposition for his sermons, his writing, and even his leadership in that revival. Naysayers and critics, some of whom were in Edwards' own family, even opposed his insistent teaching. And one of the things that he taught, Edwards believed that only believers, only Christians should participate in the Lord's table. He caught flack for that. Imagine. But you know he was right. One of Edwards' books, titled Charity and Its Fruits, explains how we are to respond to false charges. And in that first chapter, he makes the biblical point that such attacks should not surprise us. Rather, we should expect them. Here's what he wrote. Men that have their spirits heated and enraged and rising in bitter resentment when they are injured act as if they thought some strange thing had happened to them. Whereas they are very foolish in so thinking this uh, to be strange, uh, and not realizing it should be expected in a world like this. They therefore do not act wisely that allow their spirits to be ruffled by the injuries they suffer. Edwards is right. His point is that if a Christian expects to be slandered and keeps his eyes focused on God when it happens, he will not be depressed over that. It won't shake him. He should expect it. We should expect it. Anyone who is familiar with the book of 1 Peter knows that Jonathan Edwards was taking a page right out of Peter's playbook. As the apostle challenges us, and as he challenges his readers, 
to think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. And I'm quoting from 1 Peter chapter 4 there. Now most of us will never be called on to give our lives, to shed blood for the name of Jesus Christ. There's a special crown for those who are. But do you know that there are rewards for those who are ridiculed, bad-mouthed, scoffed at for the name of Jesus, your commitment, your faithfulness to him. Now, perhaps you hear these words and think, well, that sounds nice, but receiving verbal attack is still discouraging. I've faced it. I hear these things at work from my unsaved family because I'm a Christian. Sometimes, perhaps you're thinking, I wish I could just pull away or that they would just go away. I won't ask for a raise of hands, but I'm guessing that a lot of you have faced verbal opposition. I was on a police call last night, and while we were waiting at that call, an officer was talking about a family member and said, she needs Jesus. It's just an expression, I think. And I turned and I said, we all need Jesus. <laughs> it got real quiet and they changed the subject. <laughs> uh, but that could have gone in another direction as we lift our voices for the Lord. I also have the same fear, brethren, but I have seen God give grace to be a witness in spite of that verbal opposition. I'll be honest with you this morning, I've also caved. Sometimes I haven't said anything out of fear. Shame on me. But we all live in this age together and we all have a responsibility to be salt and light for our Lord where does that happen how does that happen God's given all of us a mouth a voice and he wants us to use it for his glory now Jesus used Peter to remind us of this important truth and he too was intimidated for being a follower of Jesus do you remember that there was a disciple that betrayed Jesus three times why did that betrayal happen, or what happened before that betrayal? Well, here's, here's what happened. Somebody recognized Peter and said, we recognize that you've been with Jesus. Now, Peter fully understood, if I claim to be one of his followers, they can, followers, they can start doing to me what they are right now doing to him. And all of us fear that the same or similar things could happen. But Peter also knew later the standing for the Lord in the face of verbal opposition and threats. And so here in 1 Peter, would you look at chapter 2 with me, please? And let's, if you're physically able, would you stand with me in honor of God's word, if you're physically able? Chapter 2, look at verse 4. 1 Peter chapter 2. 
to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices accepted to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a cornerstone, erect or, or elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. But unto you, therefore, which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. And a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but now are the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. By the end of this message, I want each of us to understand the parallels between the rejection and triumph of Jesus as our cornerstone, and the fact that as he was rejected, you're going to be rejected too. And yet, as he triumphed, we also will triumph. We know the final chapter, how it ends, don't we? So, if you will draw near to the Lord, remember who you are in Christ. And remember what the Lord says about your persecutors. You can be free from discouragement when you face verbal opposition. So may God use his truth to drive this home to our hearts. You may be seated. I've entitled the message today, Verbal Persecution, Lasting Solutions for Living Stones. I'm trying to take the title right from the text. Again, Verbal Persecution, Lasting Solutions for Living Stones. I am speaking to living stones who have placed their trust in the great cornerstone, Jesus Christ. And what does the scripture tell us about the cornerstone? The very same text. He was rejected by the builders. And now as our foundation, he is taking each of us as living stones and he is building his church. Play on words here, but don't be surprised if they throw stones at the living stones. Don't be surprised. Don't be shocked by that. Now, some textual background is needed here. What was the fiery trial that Peter references here in chapter 4? What was that? Well, the date of Peter's writing is early enough that the persecutions faced by the readers were due more to unofficial harassment than official policy. There was coming a time in the Roman Empire where the official policy is if you're a Christian, you die. But not right now. Uh, Christianity is new, it's spreading, and everywhere it spreads, there's verbal opposition. Now, a careful examination of the kinds of adversity that Peter described uh, here, uh, for the most part, had not escalated to bloodshed. And I wish we could look at the scriptures to help support that. This is talking about verbal opposition. Who is the audience that Peter was writing to? Well, our first hint in the text is that 
It's written to readers, the elect, who were strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, verses 1 and 2. Scattered is a word, is the word, which is a reference to the Jews being scattered through deportation and through also voluntarily moving to a foreign land. So where there was persecution, and the Jews continued to be persecuted as well, but where that happened, they continued to go other places. They were refugees, if you will. Another evidence that the audience was a group of saved Jewish individuals is a reference to your vain lifestyle received by tradition from your fathers. That's down in verse 18. What's he talking about? Peter's referencing the Jewish traditions. Yet verse 3 also points to a converted Gentile audience. So the Christians in the five provinces of Asia Minor, verse 1, were facing contempt and ridicule because they followed Jesus. Now with this background in mind, our text is meant to help believers overcome discouragement caused by verbal persecution. So how do we do it? How do we overcome? Well, here's how. First, coming to Christ the living stone. Run to Jesus. Don't run away, run to Jesus. Number two, viewing ourselves as God's living stones. Do you know that when he saved you, he made you his body, but also the structure of his church. And the church is going to live forever with him. Don't fear those that can kill the body. Okay, why? Because if you're saved, you're going to get a new one and you'll be with him forever. Number three, understand God's perspective about our persecutors. What does God say about them? We can fear them or we can just recognize what God says about them. And so the first help that Peter gives is an admonition used 16 times in Scripture. It's found in places like Matthew 11:28, James 4:8, Jeremiah 29:13, Psalm 105. It's expressed different ways, but here's what it says: Come unto me, draw nigh, seek me, seek the Lord. Don't run away, run to Jesus. So 1 Peter 2:4 bids us come to Christ. All right, so take a look at that. That's what verse 4 is asking us to do. But chosen of God and precious, to whom coming, you are coming. Coming to him as coming, uh, as living stones coming to the cornerstone. Now the benefits of coming to Jesus with our discouragement will come into full view as Peter continues to develop his text. Jesus Christ is the living stone, which refers to his stability as the risen Lord. They rejected him. They murdered him. Did that finish him? No. He said, it is finished. That means his work was done, but three days later, he walked triumphant out of the grave. You can't kill God. And so... 
God's raising of Jesus from the dead shows Jesus' value, God's choice of him. What the builders rejected, God has made the chief cornerstone. Now verse 4 tells us that Jesus was disallowed. What's that mean? He was rejected. Okay. Here the benefit of coming to Jesus, the living stone, comes into full view. Listen, through Jesus, or though Jesus was completely rejected by men, he reminds believers who come to him that he is chosen and precious in the sight of God. He is precious to his Father, and those who believe on him also become the family of God, and you are precious to him. So Jewish and Gentile believers reading this part of Peter's letter would remember that the rejection they were facing had already been experienced in greater ways by their Savior, by their Lord. Yet despite the meaningless opinions of man, God the Father had chosen Jesus to be the rock upon which he'd build his church. So the first step for believers who are discouraged by verbal persecution is to come to Christ, the living stone. Remember what we learned in Acts when Peter was being stoned to death? He looks to heaven. I think he was prompted by the Holy Spirit. He looks to heaven. And what did Jesus do? Somebody help me. He stood up off of his throne. The living stone, the cornerstone, looked down and saw what was happening and he stood. I think to honor Stephen and to prepare to welcome Stephen. Does that give you comfort and courage? It does me. It does me. Is Jesus aware when they're throwing verbal stones at us or real stones? Oh, yes, he is. And he cares. Now, instead of looking out at our critics and becoming disgusted, or looking within and becoming discouraged, Jesus wants us to look up to the divine living stone. So what's our first response when verbal persecution comes? Now this is taking into account that you're being a witness, you're being a testimony, you're being salt and light. Somebody, some Christian says, well, that never happens to me. Well, then you're not using your voice to be a testimony for the Lord. But if you are, and persecution comes, what's your first response? Look at them with disgust? Look inside in despair? Or you look up? Jesus says look up. And so view yourself as a living stone. The statements made in verse 5 are intended to be a clear parallel to those in verse 4. Those in Peter's audience are also living stones who are being built up into a spiritual house by God. I love looking out here, and I, I love seeing what God is building. You can look up here and see what God is building. Mike isn't building this. In fact, Mike has to not yield to his flesh, or I keep tearing it down. I have to yield to him, look to him. But, but when I do, this is what he's building. He is building us into his image. God chose his son to be the first living stone. 
And on Christ, he is building the church. Paul would tell the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 3, 9, ye are God's building. He would remind them in chapter 3, verse 11, that the foundation is Christ. However, parallels in 2, 5 are meant to encourage, back in 1 Peter, persecuted saints about their powerful bond with Jesus as living stones. They are also like their Savior in three ways. And I like the imagery of the stone. But we're like our Savior in these ways. In verses 5 and 9, Christians are a holy and royal priesthood. Now, for sake of time, I wish we could develop this more, but what does that mean? You have direct access to God. If you're reading through your Bible this year, you're in Leviticus. The Jews then did not have direct access to God. They had to go through a priest. You and I are priests. There's only one high priest, but we are priests. Also, Christians can offer up spiritual sacrifices accepted by God, uh, acceptable to God by Jesus Christ, verse 5. Do you realize this morning, as priests, you have already offered up sacrifices of praise? Orchestra, choir. When you gave your tithes and offerings, that was part of your worship too. But, but we have offered up sacrifices today. Again, I'm reading through Leviticus over and over. Who offered the sacrifices? Just the priests. They would bring their offerings to the tabernacle, and then the priests did the, did the offering. And if they did it correctly, it was accepted. When you and I come with clean, holy hearts because we love the Lord and we lift our voices in praise, we're offering sacrifices. And question, are they accepted by God? Absolutely. Absolutely. What a privilege. What a joy that is. And then Christians will not face ultimate shame. That's part of the blessing too. Look at verse 6. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be what? Confounded. Now, it's easy to be confounded when we do the right thing and it seems to backfire. And down here, we can, we can have those feelings. Lord, I have been a testimony for you, and they passed me over for that promotion. Is it supposed to work that way? I'm confounded. God says, it's going to work that way. Don't be ashamed. Don't be confounded. Why? Because Christians will not face ultimate shame. Your loss here is your gain there. That's what the Lord is telling us. So this should be a great encouragement as unbelievers uh, mocked and ridiculed the church. Those who would read this letter from Peter, what a blessing they would receive. Verse 6 is not teaching that believers will never be shamed. God didn't promise that. Jesus taught his disciples that men shall revile you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. Why? Great is your reward in heaven. Matthew 5, 11, and 12. So Christian, do you realize that the church will ultimately escape the shame that will come to those who reject Jesus?
I wonder if we're going to stand and bear testimony to that day. When the great white throne is happening, where are we going to be? I wonder if we're going to be in the courtroom. I wonder if we're going to be watching and if part of our ability to be able to see that will be the Lord reminding us, there's where the shame is. It's not on you. You trusted me. You took me at my word. It's on them. When you face a verbal assault or even a raised eyebrow, remember that one day every mouth will be stopped and all the world will become guilty before God. Romans 3. Those who previously ridiculed Christ and his followers will confess, Philippians 2, that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every American president is going to bow the knee and confess it. Every empire ruler, every despot, dictator, they're going to confess that Jesus is Lord. And oh, by the way, so will Satan. Every knee will bow. So this brings us back to the clear parallel between verses 4 and 5 and what God's children must remember when verbal persecution is directed at us. Through Jesus, I'm sorry, though Jesus and his church are rejected by men, all are living stones, were chosen by God and accepted, and our sacrifices are pleasing to the Father. Now, the final means that Peter uses to help God's living stones overcome the discouragement of verbal persecution is to explain to them the destiny of their unbelieving persecutors. So I'm taking into account all of our audience, all of our listening audience, even with the live stream. We may have some unbelievers listening. There may be unbelievers here today. You need to understand God's perspective about you as a rejecter of him. First of all, understand he wants to save you. He wants you to believe so that you someday don't have to be ashamed. But you need to understand what's going to happen if you continue to reject Christ. And Christian, it does help us to understand God's perspective about those who throw verbal stones or physical stones at us. Now, I have experienced both. Pastor, you have? Oh, yeah. I was on a missions trip in Mexico one time. One evening we had a service. We were handing out Bibles. The missionary preached. Folks came to Christ. As we were leaving that mountain village that night, we heard something uh, that shocked us. I don't know that it shocked the missionaries so much, but rocks start bouncing off that van. And the missionary quickly sped up, and as he's speeding up, he said this. The priest probably hired those guys to stone us. I'm glad we were out of town very quickly. So I have experienced it, though I'm glad none of those stones connected with me. And so what does the Lord say about our persecutors? Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect precious, and those who believe on me will by no means be shamed. Of course, I'm paraphrasing there. The word contained 
is a word that means for it stands. So in scripture, the truth stands that God has laid a chief cornerstone in Zion. His son is the most important stone in the building and he is the foundation. He supports the whole superstructure. Every day that structure gets bigger and stronger. The gates of hell can't prevail. Don't forget that. The media have loud voices and lots of exposure. That doesn't mean they're right or that they're succeeding. Now in verse 6, verses 6 through 10, Peter quotes several Old Testament passages that predict Messiah's coming and the consequences for those who will accept or reject what God has done. This is the testimony theologically of Scripture. Again, these verses are meant to free our spirits as believers from discouragement when we face vocal mockery, when they oppose our faith. So what are these, these predictions that should help our perspective? Well, first of all, the prediction of a cornerstone for the believer. Again, verse two or verse 6 of chapter 2. There Peter quotes Isaiah 28, 16. Although Isaiah gives a more detailed description of the cornerstone there, Peter emphasizes that the cornerstone is elect. Simply means it was chosen by God, verse 4. The last description that Peter gives of the cornerstone in verse 6 is that it's precious, it's honorable. So both Peter and Isaiah are testifying to the fact that the cornerstone is worthy of honor, and who gives the cornerstone that honor? God does. He has exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow. So what are the consequences for believing on the chief cornerstone? Well, earlier we saw that he's going to not shame us. He's going to reward us. But what are the consequences for those who reject him? Intended shame. Intended shame. They'll bow the knee, and then angels will literally take them to hell. They're not even going to be able to raise their voices before the throne the Bible says every mouth will be stopped. Now, they're going to try. Jesus told us in Matthew that they're going to say, Lord, didn't we do these things? The Lord's going to respond to them, and then their voices are going to be stopped. I don't know you. The books will be open in the book of life, and their name is not there. And then they'll be dragged off to an eternity separated from God. God made us for fellowship, and for all eternity, his testimony to them will be, I don't want your fellowship. Why? You rejected me. I sent my son, my very form in human flesh, and you said, no, I don't want that. Okay. You're going to get the darkness you wanted. It'll be an eternity separated from God and an eternity of shame. And so there's that prediction. And then there's the prediction of condemnation. Peter concludes these seven verses with these words, but to those who are disobedient, 
The stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The word translated disobedient is really the word for unbelieving. They have not believed. They're in opposition. Disobedience is a synonym term here because unbelief causes men to not trust and follow God. And so what will the consequences be? There will be the consequence of shame. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The throne room of heaven will declare, you got it wrong. That's what the, the great white throne is. I'm kneeling, if I rejected the Lord, I'm kneeling before him, and the whole testimony of heaven and earth will be, you are wrong. If you ever had something that you thought was true and you voiced it as true and then it came back that you had missed the mark, I've been wrong. Probably you've been wrong. But before the throne of God, you don't want to be wrong. Consequence of shame. A consequence of stumbling. The word a stone of stumbling in our translation literally means a loose stone in the path. Okay, it goes on, if you study this out, it's a, it's a stone that as you're walking down the path, a loose stone, and you get that, and you stub your toe, and you stumble and fall. Anybody ever been there? Okay, I, I have. In my young age, I have, okay. It hurts. It's embarrassing, and sometimes it really hurts because you end up on the ground. That's the imagery here. The consequence of stumbling. Quite literally, if you don't believe on Jesus, you're going to stumble and you're going to fall right into hell. Finally, the providence of God in persecution is also seen in the text. The Bible indicates that those persecuting believers are appointed to stumble and disobey the word. What exactly is the apostle saying here? Well, Ellicott in his commentary says this, the clear prophecies of the Old Testament, which Peter had quoted, mark the unbelieving Jews for such a destiny. It was no unforeseen accidental consequence of the gospel. It had never been expected that all who would hear the gospel would accept it. Those who stumbled by disbelief were marked out in prophecy as men who would stumble. Now, in the providence of God, he knows that. But in the mercies of God, he has said this, I don't want you to stumble and be destroyed. I want to save you. I love you. Hear the compassion of Jesus in that? Say, well, you don't know how bad I've been. Jesus does, and he died and paid for all that sin. And he offers you salvation. I can show you some really bad people in the Bible that are in heaven today. And probably what I show you is no worse than what you are or what I've been. So let's conclude. Do you understand the parallels between the rejection and triumph of Jesus as the cornerstone and your own rejection and triumph? Jesus faced it. Well, does, does Jesus care when, I, when I'm getting these verbal stones thrown at me? Do you know that they even took up stones in Jesus' day to stone him? 
Now, he didn't die that way. He died on a cross. But there isn't anything that you're going to face that's the nastiness that what they said to him. Consider the contradiction of sinners against him and be encouraged. Be encouraged. So what do we do? We go to the Lord. We turn to him. And we remember what he has said about their shame, that we don't need to be ashamed, that their shame actually gains for us reward in heaven. And then, if you'll think about what the Lord said of them. Now, this is not saying, all right, at a point like that, like the disciples did one day, Lord, would you just rain down fire? This is a problem. Lord, would you just remove that? That's not what he's saying. But he's saying, look at them, understand the shame that one day they will face, love them and have mercy on them, and continue to try to influence them with your voice for the kingdom. Amen? Well, I don't think they deserve it, and neither do you or me. So continue to be a testimony. But don't let verbal assault discourage you. Father, thank you for this text. And Lord, would you use it to help us to continue to follow you as believers, not deniers. Lord, the day may come when, like Peter, at risk of our own life, we still are loyal to your name. But Father, even with the verbal assaults, our loyalty needs to stay intact. In fact, if full-blown persecution is coming, Lord, you're preparing us now when we stand against the verbal attack and we go to you. So thank you for this text today. Lord, would you continue to use it even in our study in Acts remind ourselves that we need to stay true even though persecution is here it's here to stay it's real but Lord it's a privilege to suffer shame mockery whatever it's a privilege to suffer for your name because for our salvation you suffered these things for us we love you Lord and Father, would you enable us to bring glory to God by a testimony that will not cave in to shame, to hate, to verbal assault. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.